this past October, Anna would have been um, 18. Atea Islanian can talk stoically about her daughter, Anna. And uh, it definitely gets more difficult. But it's just masking her pain. Different people that I've talked to have said, you learn to cope and, you know, as time goes on. And I, I can say this wholeheartedly, I don't believe you learn to cope. I believe that you learn to survive. Anna was the victim of bullying at her local high school in Lowell, Massachusetts, before committing suicide two weeks after her 16th birthday. When all of that happened, you know, we were all in shock. Um, I can't even really begin to express the, the different emotions. That Left scrambling for answers. Everybody trying to kind of pull themselves together. Um, we had discovered a letter that she had left behind. Her mom found a suicide note tucked beneath a collage of photos hanging on her bedroom wall. Three photos of Paris, a place she dreamed of visiting one day. Basically, uh, her, her letter was very in-depth and, in her own words, said, I've basically been bullied and body shamed since seventh grade. Detailing her abuse. Telling her that she was fat, that she should be smaller. Um, that constant poking, that constant, um, you know, body shaming piece. So these little blips, you know, or, or these little, you know, things that she writes in her letter, the meaning behind them is, is huge. From the University of Florida's Breckner Center, I'm Gabriella Paul, and this is a Why Don't We Know extra episode about the human toll of missing data. Depending on where you look, you can find a statistic that will tell you any number you want to hear about how often students are bullied or harassed in school. In my reporting, I found studies that range from 9% to 98%. The National Center for Education Statistics aggregated the findings of 80 different studies and reported that 35% of students are bullied in school, another 15% are cyberbullied or bullied online. Why is that? Why are bullying numbers all over the place? And why does it cause students, like Anna Islanian, to fall through the cracks? The problem of inconsistent data goes back to a national reporting requirement by the Department of Education, what's known as the Civil Rights Data Collection. If that sounds familiar, it's because we took a deep dive into this data set in Episode 12 when we looked at guns being brought into schools. Basically, every two years, schools have to report nearly 2,000 data points to the department, which includes the reported incidents of bullying, broken down by five categories, based on gender, race, ability, sexual orientation, and religion. The key word there is reported, reported incidents. And if you're wondering, well, how often do victims really turn in their bullies? Then you've cracked the code. In fact, a jump in cases rarely means that the bullying or harassment is more frequent. It might actually mean that victims feel more secure in outing their perpetrators. Therefore, self-reporting is historically a terrible way of tracking. In fact, when we look at national crime statistics that depend on this model, like rates of domestic violence and sex crimes, surveys show that the numbers are severely underreported. That's because the data relies on voluntary, self-reporting victims. Tracking bullying and harassment is no exception. In 2010, a renowned book, retained in part by the U.S. National Library of Medicine, published research on the topic and found that national rates of bullying vary anywhere from 5 to 44 percent 
because of inconsistent tracking methods. Our team of reporters at Why Don't We Know requested bullying numbers from all 50 states and found instances where similarly sized districts provided wildly different numbers, lending credibility to the assumption that not everyone is tracking the same way. In addition, at the state level, even at the district level, bullying isn't consistently defined, so it can't be consistently tracked. Why Don't We Know reporter McKenna Beery spoke with a bullying expert about the inherent flaws of bullying surveillance. And states don't even have consistent or universal laws or tactics for reporting bullying incidents. Data can be easily manipulated, and I think data can be both a tool and a um, tool for, you know, accountability, but it also can lead to schools trying to discount or hide more behavior. That's Dr. Deborah Temkin. She's the VP of research for a national nonprofit called Child Trends, which is widely trusted for its data analysis. So what I mean by that is that, you know, it's um, it's sort of a motivation for schools to keep their numbers low. They don't want to be perceived as an unsafe school. They don't want parents to think that there's lots and lots of bullying happening at their schools. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a incentive for schools to suppress those numbers and to really discount things that might really be bullying, um, but they they don't want to count because, you know, it would inflate their numbers. Gotcha. I received a response from a FOIA request from one of the states. I was just trying to pull it up. It said that they don't actually require their schools to report any bullying data. And I think that's the case with most schools. I mean, the right. only time that, you know, there there are a couple of states that do require it. Um, D.C. is one. Um, but there, there are... Um, Schools are required to report for the civil rights data collection. What we see in the civil rights data collection is that, you know, the the rate of bullying um, is less than one percent if you consider the full population of students. I ran the numbers myself, using data made available by the U.S. Department of Ed. In the fall of 2017, over 50 million students were enrolled in K-12 schools. The same school year, almost 123,000 cases of bullying were reported, which comes out to 0.24. Like Deborah said, that's purportedly less than 1% of all students being bullied in America. Just like we expected, the numbers prove bullying incidents are underreported because the data relies on self-reporting victims and good-acting schools, two things that rarely happen together, if at all. What Deborah Temkin suggested is that instead of relying on overt acts of reporting, schools should move toward actively reaching out to students to get a sense of the social climate inside their classrooms. This might make numbers seem higher, but they would likely be more accurate. A survey, for example, could achieve that. Schools or some other entity would reach out to students and give them the opportunity to report instead of the student having to reach out first. It's really the school that's recording and making the decision whether or not to record an incident or not. And so we have to think through that in terms of the validity of those data. Anna Islanian was supposed to be given a survey at her high school. We were told that there is a, a mental health survey. I, think, I thought they said that they give to sophomores and seniors. After her death, her parents asked for that survey. It should have been kept in Anna's records. They basically said they, that it, it, they could not um, offer that to us. It was not available to us. And again, I don't know if it was that they couldn't, they didn't have access to it, they couldn't locate it or whatnot, but we basically never were able to see that record. 
um, of hers. As far as we know, Anna had not officially reported her bullies to school administrators. And without that survey, there was no evidence, no paper trail of her suffering. When we sat down for the investigation, we requested that specific individuals be interviewed because of Anna's letter, because of stories that were brought to us um, from other individuals. Bullies who were identified by Anna in her final words. These individuals were neglected to be interviewed. School officials found no wrongdoing on their part. And it was stated that upon investigation that was conducted between the headmaster um, and a couple of other um, individuals at the high school, uh, the conclusion was that they found no evidence of bullying. Anna became a missing data point on the spreadsheet tracking bullying at her school. I can't really say that I feel that the investigation was what I would want it to be, you know, because the school is investigating itself. Anna's case was a perfect storm. There were no records and therefore no liability. But when Atea began to dig deeper, she realized that this missing data problem extends beyond her daughter's case. When you have something that you can, that is visible, that, you know, you can look at and, you know, it's, um, there's statistics there, you know, it, research has been done. I think it makes it more real. And so maybe this really is a questionable problem or maybe this really is an issue that needs to be addressed. I think that if you have tools like this, I, I think it's just, it, it kind of arms you with more knowledge and you're able to, to understand and to be more attentive to um, resources that schools need. There's another layer to this. In fact, many more layers. The problem of bullying has plagued schools and parents and advocates for years. And with the rise of the internet, it's only become more of a national health crisis. Schools struggle to define bullying. In one case, we found that students using the N-word went unpunished because there was no specific mention of race in the school's bullying policy. The fact is, School staff are still struggling with how to solve this problem. Better data could surely help them get a better grasp on it, could surely help lawmakers write more effective legislation, could surely help administrators better understand what's really happening amongst students. Even so, parents of students who are bullied might still be kept in the dark. And the reason is student privacy. The federal student privacy law, known as FERPA, has been the focus of season one of Why Don't We Know, and it contributes to the persistence of bullying. Across the country, we've seen FERPA deny parents the ability to know the punishment in cases where their children were victims of bullies. Parents' primary objection? FERPA is doing more to protect the privacy of bullies than to protect victims. The result is that schools are free to operate in the dark. There is no accountability, no assurance that cases are being taken seriously. That's what's frustrating to me is the Student Privacy Act, because I get student privacy. I understand that. That's Brooke Greer, a Kansas mom whose adopted daughter, Salea, endured racial bullying for years. When your child is the one being victimized, you know, you go through a court system and you're allowed to know what, um, what your perpetrator was given. After they've committed a crime, you're allowed to know what the punishment was. And I don't understand in a school system why that can't be, why it can't be that way as well. She spoke to reporter McKenna Beery about what happened. Well, it's actually been going on since middle school. Um, the same group of boys basically making fun of her hair, 
her skin color, calling her names, um, to the point where she wouldn't let me um, put any kind of protective hairstyle in, like braids or anything like that, um, because she didn't want to be made fun of. Brooke told me that she didn't realize the extent of the problem. Because she's a pretty strong girl, so she um, would just say, I don't want to stand out. I want to be like everybody else. Until a trip at the end of their eighth grade year. After they got home, um, there were pictures circulating on Instagram. It was an ape statue from the theme park they visited. There was a young man behind the ape statue that appeared to be doing sexually inappropriate things to the statue. And Saleya was tagged in the photo. Someone had tagged Saleya as being the ape. It continued the next year in high school. These boys kept making comments to her in math class and kind of razzing her and, you know, the usual things, making fun of her hair. And, and they were calling her orangutan. And then another photo began to circulate. And I did not know about this until all of this um, came to fruition in math class when they started sending pictures of her depicted um, as an orangutan, um, pictures of her that um, it, it was photoshopped with a photo of her on the bottom of a shoe and it said something about shit on my shoe. Up until now, Saleya hadn't reported anything. She was afraid of what the bullies might do if she got them in trouble. Eventually, her mom stepped in anyway, insisting the administrators get involved. In turn, she expected to be kept in the loop, to be informed of the punishment her child's bullies now faced, to at least be reassured that Saleya was now safe at school. I wasn't able to um, be given any official word because of the Student Privacy Act. She was completely left in the dark, told that the information she was seeking was privacy protected by FERPA. I'm not asking for a social security number. I'm not asking for a health report. I'm asking to know what discipline was given when it involves my child. And to me, I have a right to know that. I have a right to know that if my child was called the N-word, I have a right to know if you dealt with it appropriately or you didn't. Uh, just talking about it with you, my, I just feel my blood pressure going up because when my child is treated inappropriately, I feel like the bully gave up their privacy at that point. When you decide to not be respectful to my child, then I have a right to know how you're, you are disciplined. The only information she received was through the grapevine. Rumors in the hallways and talk amongst parents that made their way back to her. She eventually learned that the kids got a few days' detention. Soon after, word spread to social media, the police got involved, and the local news caught wind of it. Tonight, we are hearing from local parents who say their daughter is the victim of bullying and racism. She joined a growing list of parents across the country who feel slighted by the schools where their children were bullied. Nearly every day, the Fox 6 investigators get emails about children being bullied. In 2014, Milwaukee public schools were under fire. Desperate parents claiming school districts aren't taking their concerns seriously. Years later in Missouri, Jennifer Quinn says her daughter was assaulted at lunchtime at Marshfield Junior High last week. It's been a week and I still don't know anything. In March of 2020, parents frustrated with their school system, saying the administration is turning a blind eye to bullying. And there are many, many, many more. Too many to count. 
A 15-year-old Cattle Moraine student is suing the school district. She says she's been the target of racist bullying. He was in the ninth grade at Huntsville High School. However, Thursday, Nigel tragically took his own life, and by all accounts, it was due to bullying from others about his sexuality. Cyberbullying is far too common for kids and teens these days. Because anyone can hide behind a screen, bullying is easier than ever, and it can happen anywhere and anytime. These stories highlight so many different failures. Failures to define bullying, the flawed reliance on victims to be the ones to come forward, the underreported and unreliable tracking of bullying, the misuse of privacy laws to shield parents from knowing if or how bullies have been disciplined. And it all comes at a human cost. At the end of uh, her letter, she wrote, I hope that by writing this letter, it brings awareness to the way people treat each other. And I hope that people can contribute to this world in a more positive way now that I can no longer contribute. Sorry. To help Atea in her mission to spread bullying and suicide awareness, you can visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention online at asfp.org. To make a difference where you live, join a local chapter or participate in an out-of-the-darkness community walk in your city to raise funds and awareness against suicide. If you are the victim of bullying or know someone who is, visit stopbullying.gov for resources and support. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-272-8255 or visit them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. This extra was written by me, Gabriella Paul, with additional reporting by McKenna Beery. Records requests for this episode were done by McKenna Beery, Camille Respis, Audrey Mostek, Tori Whitten, Hannah Himmelgreen, Arlette Garcia, Hansi Chen, Noah Ram, Kaylee Whitten, Rebecca Grinker, Trey Ecker, and Alexandra Harris. The producer and host of Why Don't We Know is Sarah Gannam. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. This episode was edited by Amy Fu and James Sullivan. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Bruckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.